Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Uh, It's great to be with you all. I'm Mike Wykamp. I am a general surgery resident at the University of Washington, and it's my pleasure to introduce our minimally invasive surgery team, which is comprised of Drs. Andrew Wright, Nick Citrullo, and myself. Dr. Wright is the Center for Video Endoscopic Surgery Endowed Professor, the Fellowship Director for the Advanced Minimally Invasive Surgery Program at the University of Washington, as well as the Director of our Hernia Center. Dr. Citrullo is a Fellowship-trained minimally invasive surgeon and the Director of Appsite and Board Review for our General Surgery Residency Program. Beyond their titles and responsibilities, both are perennial favorites amongst the residents and medical students at UW, and I'd like to start by thanking you both for lending your time and expertise to the Behind the Knife listeners. Now, this is Andrew Wright. It's uh, a lot of fun being on this podcast because I've been a guest a few times on Behind the Knife, so it's, it's nice to be on the other side of the, the microphone as a host now. Um, I also want to point out that uh, none of the three of us have any relevant uh, conflicts of interest as it regards robotics, colorectal, or hernia surgery. Um, I also will say that I have a little bit of a personal conflict of interest in that I am well known as a a skeptic of the robot uh, who is now starting to use the robot in my clinical practice. So I'm right in that inflection point of figuring out where this sits in uh, in our world of minimally invasive surgery. And uh, so that's why this topic is of personal interest to me. My name is uh, Nick Strillo. Thank you, Mike, for introducing myself and uh, Dr. Wright over here. We are very excited to be taking part in this and helping the great group at Behind the Knife uh, present more topics and get more uh, varied opinions and outputs. And I'm excited to continue to record these um, podcasts for you. Over the coming months, we plan to cover various topics in minimally invasive surgery. But for our inaugural episode, we are going to discuss robot-assisted surgery and how the robotic platform has been evaluated for use in general surgery using two high-profile articles from recent years, which we feel are emblematic of the way the robot platform has been evaluated by our field. The articles are The Robot versus Laparoscopic Resection for Rectal Cancer, better known as The Roller Trial, by Dr. Jane and colleagues, published in JAMA Surgery in 2017, and the robotic inguinal versus transabdominal laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair or rival study by Dr. Prabhu et al., also from JAMA Surgery in 2020. Before we get going with the discussion, I just want to say that while our first selected article, the Roller Trial, is about rectal cancer, that we'll be focusing on its impact on minimally invasive and robotic surgery rather than the nuance of rectal cancer management. For the latest and greatest in colorectal surgery, we'll be tuning in along with the rest of you for future episodes by our colleagues from the Leahy Clinic and the University of Montreal. Finally, for the sake of making this digestible and easier to listen to, we'll only be reporting percentages and statistics for primary outcomes and statistically significant results, but we'll have the links to the articles in the show notes so you can check out the more granular details at your leisure. With that said, Dr. Citrullo, can you walk us through the basics of the roller trial? Happy to. Uh, to start, the Roller Study is an international, prospective, randomized controlled trial comparing robot-assisted resections for rectal cancer. This included both low anterior resection and abdominal perineal resections against conventional laparoscopic approaches. 
primary outcome that they measured in this study was conversion to open laparotomy with multiple numerous secondary outcomes, including oncologic endpoints such as circumferential tumor margin positivity and lymph node harvest yield, as well as patient-reported quality of life and outcome measures uh, measured six months at post-procedure. These outcomes, particularly the conversion rate and the patient-reported outcomes, including sexual function after surgery and bladder dysfunction after surgery, were selected to clarify other studies that had low-level evidence suggesting that improved visualization and dexterity on the robotic platform could benefit reduction in some of these post-operative troublesome outcomes for patients and the interest to the general surgery community because of the many different surgeons across the country who are doing these operations and the many different approaches. Working deep in the pelvis, whether open or minimally invasive, requires a high degree of dexterity, and having some objective outcome metrics, such as conversion rates, uh, represents a perfect storm for demonstrating patient benefit with the robotic platform. Great. Getting into the trial results. While the conversion to open rate was slightly lower in the robot-assisted group at 8.1% compared to 12.2% in the conventional laparoscopy group, it was not significantly lower. Similarly, none of the a priori secondary outcomes, including rates of circumferential margin positivity, bladder dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, intra- and post-operative complications, and 30-day mortality or quality of the mesorectal dissection, as determined by both pathologic and operative video review, demonstrated any significant difference between groups. With respect to cost and operating time, however, conventional laparoscopy was significantly cheaper by an average of $1,132 US per patient and faster by an average of 37.5 minutes compared to the robot-assisted group. Dr. Wright, on face value, it seems like the trial provided a compelling case that the robotic platform failed to demonstrate a patient benefit to justify its added cost. Is that a fair charge? Well, well, there's certainly no obvious victory for the robotic platform uh, looking at these results. I think there are some nuanced points to be made about the trial design and the surgeon experience in each group uh, that make it a little bit um, less of a a uh, cut-and-dried answer. So first, um, you know, conventional laparoscopic surgery outcomes are are a moving target, and this study was powered to detect a 50% decrease in conversion and laparotomy uh, in robot-assisted surgery compared to laparoscopy. But they used a baseline conversion rate for conversion that was estimated using the uh, MRC Classic trial from 2007. And uh, although 2007 doesn't seem that far uh, long ago compared to... uh, um, uh, since that was actually right about when I was finishing my residency. In fact, the, the field has moved since then. Um, the rate of conversion to laparotomy at that time was about 34%, and it uh, certainly seems to be less than that now. Uh, in the ROLAR uh, trial, the true conversion rate was off by more than a factor of two, and that makes the study really underpowered, uh, despite a, a good study design. Um, so you can make an argument that the robotic platform having a conversion rate of only 8.1% is pretty uh, pretty good, especially considering that we're still in the early days of robotic colorectal surgery compared to laparoscopic colorectal surgery. Uh, the other thing is if you look at the gender subgroup analysis, there's a statistically significant improvement in conversion to laparotomy looking just at male patients. 
uh, looking at 8.7% compared to 16%. And that makes sense given the male pelvis is typically narrower and it's more difficult to operate in the male uh, pelvis. So it may be that the benefits of minimally invasive surgery uh, and the fact that you have a, uh, an easier time of performing successful minimally invasive surgery in these more difficult cases uh, can show some benefit for the robot. I think that's a great point. I think another thing to keep in mind is when people are designing these studies, it is a moving target. Study data comes out five years or so after the trial is run, and whether that's comparable five years later can certainly be questionable. I also think it's worth pointing out that when we're talking about um, procedures being cheaper, this is not experienced by the patient. This is cost to the healthcare system, and this is something that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But to speak more about what you were just talking about, Andy, the authors acknowledge that there is a difference in experience between the surgeons with each platform and with the surgeon in conventional laparoscopy. The group in the conventional laparoscopy had more pre-trial or pre-study repetitions on the platform, uh, but when you then <clears throat> uh, look at the study trial supplemental materials, they see that the mean number of laparoscopic rectal cancer resections prior to participating in the study was 153, which is more than double the prior number of robotic resections among participating surgeons, which was only 68. So when we talk about the difference in conversion rate being lower than expected, despite it still being a higher rate, this is also with less pre-trial experience when using this platform for this type of procedure, which I think is an important point when looking at all of this. It's something we want to discuss more, and Andy will help us with this, is when laparoscopy was kind of becoming the standard of care for a lot of these positions and fields. The conversion rate was one of the things that was most often brought up as a reason to not do laparoscopic cases, yet very few studies currently are looking at conversion from robotic to another platform, and I find that an interesting change. But getting back to the Rollar study, I do think that these findings show that there is a significant benefit to the robotic platform, as it appears to offer comparable outcomes with respect to conversional laparotomy, oncologic metrics, and most importantly for myself, and I know for Andy, as we have talked about this a lot, is quality of life scores uh, for our patients and quality of the surgeons in terms of how they feel the operation went. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about this more when we get to the hernia trial. Um, but I look at all of this style of trial really looking at uh, are, the, are the outcomes equivalent? It's, it's almost a non-inferiority trial because we want to make sure that adoption of this new technology isn't hurting the patients. Once we show that it isn't hurting the patients, we have the same oncologic option, uh, outcomes or the same recurrence outcomes or, or whatever metric you want to look at, then we can start looking at all these other questions like cost and ergonomics and, and conversion rates and length of stay. Um, but the first principle is we have to make sure we're, we're getting the same primary outcomes using a new technology. And what's interesting about that is when you talk about other trials looking at the robot, that doesn't seem to be the focus of the study, at least for the current 
robotic general surgery papers that are coming out. A lot of them focus on cost difference for the, for the medical system and the hospital systems and are not looking at proving that it is non-inferior, which usually is the first step in all of this research when we're developing a new technology or a new procedure is making sure it's proven to be safe and effective. And in some ways, the cost argument has gotten put first and foremost ahead of patients. And for the sake of time and to allow for a broader discussion about how we use and study the robot at the end, let's switch gears for a bit and talk about our other selected article, the RIVAL trial. Dr. Wright, can you give us a quick overview of the RIVAL study? Sure. The RIVAL study was a multi-institution, prospective, randomized controlled trial that compared conventional conventional laparoscopic and robot-assisted transabdominal preperitoneal, or TAP, inguinal hernia repair outcomes. Uh, So the authors, who are all excellent and well-known hernia surgeons, were really interested in determining if the robotic platform had any benefit in patient outcomes at 7 and 30 days post-repair. So we don't have long-term recurrence outcomes. We're really looking at short-term post-operative outcomes. Uh, They used a 100-point visual analog scale for post-operative pain. They looked at the quality of life with the short-form 36 questionnaire. They looked at adverse events, wound morbidity, um, cosmesis, uh, and operative time and cost. Uh, Really unique, though, is that they also looked at surgeon-focused outcomes. And we we often talk about patient outcomes. We don't often talk about surgeon outcomes. Uh, So they looked at ergonomics using a validated ergonomics assay, the, the RULA, or Rapid Upper Limb Assessment. And they also looked at mental workload using a validated NASA TLX or Task Load Index uh, study. Um, They did compare only fellowship-trained minimally invasive surgeons who had both uh, laparoscopic and robotic experience. Um, However, the numbers uh, that were required were 25 lap and 25 robot repairs prior to entry into the study. In addition to controlling for that surgeon experience, the authors were also able to control the surgical technique used for each approach, and that all patients had equivalent mesh placement in terms of size and position, port size, and all patients undergoing the laparoscopic tack used a permanent tacking device to secure the mesh and to close the perineum, and all robotic-assisted repairs use a permanent suture to secure the mesh and a running suture also permanent to close the perineal flap. This, in a, in a uh, description of good study design significantly should cut down on the confounding variables attributed to multiple variations or multiple approaches to technique, uh, and especially given the number of surgeons and institutions that were in the trial, uh, they did a nice job of trying to control for that. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I thought this trial was thoughtfully designed, and it was particularly interesting to see the claims of improved ergonomics with robot surgery studied head-to-head in a rigorous way. Uh, Before diving into the results, I just wanted to point out that because of the nature of uh, the outcomes being evaluated and lack of high-quality pre-trial baseline metrics, uh, the authors were unable to make meaningful power calculations, um, uh, and they made a point to qualify the trial as being a pilot study despite their high degree of confidence that the results can still be used uh, and interpreted to guide clinical practice. 
Uh, with respect to the patient outcome data, uh, all of which were controlled against preoperative baseline assessments where possible, the authors found no difference between the two platforms with respect to any of the variables they evaluated, early and late postoperative pain, quality of life, mobility, adverse events, and patient-reported cosmesis. Somewhat surprisingly, though, the Composite Rula Ergonomics Index similarly did not show any difference between platforms, and the NASA Task Loading Index, uh, a metric of surgeon mental workload and frustration, was actually significantly higher in the robot group. Less surprisingly, based on uh, the existing literature, uh, operating time and costs were significantly higher in the robot group compared to the laparoscopic group, with median costs of uh, $3,248 compared to $1,421, and median uh, times, uh, median operating times of 70.5 minutes and uh, 40.5 minutes, respectively. Shortly after Rival was published, the authors, Dr. Ajita Prabhu and Michael Rosen, participated in an interview with JAMA in which they said that this data has prompted them to drop the robotic platform in their practice uh, for use in routine inguinal hernias. Dr. Zatrulo, should the rest of us follow suit? I would start by saying a few comments about the study design and their assessment and outcome based on their own research. It's interesting when you read the study, their closing statement and conclusion is very strongly against the robot, despite the fact that the clinical outcomes for the patients that they measured are exactly the same. When you look at the operative times, I think that a 40.5-minute laparoscopic tap is not repeatable amongst most general surgeons trying to do minimally invasive hernia repairs, whereas a 70-minute robotic tap is probably pretty accurate in terms of the time for an average surgeon to do a unilateral inguinal hernia on the robot. So it's interesting to see when you see these expert laparoscopists doing a hernia repair in 40 minutes and wondering whether that's truly applicable to the general population, and is this just a measure, really, of the, the how facile these surgeons are using laparoscopy? Also, when looking at the cost outcomes, this is in contrast to other procedures or other studies that have shown that the cost of a laparoscopic tacker often comes close to approximating the cost of the robot. But... What I think is the most important thing to take out of the study is honestly that it showed no difference in clinical outcomes between robotic and laparoscopic tap repairs. So I, I want to come back to the ergonomics and cost questions um, uh, in a few minutes. Um, but what I think, just to echo what Dr. Citrullo said, it really shows that the patient-level outcomes are equivalent. And that's a key finding because there's been a rapid adoption of robotic hernia repairs driven in large part by marketing by the company and by social media um, that made us all sort of feel like we were uh, being left out if we weren't hopping on the robot. Um, so it's nice to see that, that at least on the patient level we're getting the same outcomes. And I think that's the bare minimum standard that then allows us to start talking about all these other questions. Um, when you come to cost, 
it's interesting because the cost of the robot really depends on how you do your accounting and how you account for the fixed capital cost of the robot, which can be huge, and whether you then apportion that and how you amortize that over the years. And so you can make an argument on a per-case basis that because you're using um, suture instead of attacker and that you're not using a balloon like you might use in a tapingal hernia repair, you can make a case-by-case cost-based question, but then you also have to think about the societal and hospital system level cost of buying a $2 million robot and all of the follow-on costs to that. Um, When we talk about cost, I, I think cost is the wrong question. I think really the question has to be value. Uh, Sort of a conventional measure of value is you take your patient-level outcomes and divide it by your cost. So if your outcomes are the same, no benefit, and your costs are higher, value is, is down. And if you have a decrease in your value, then you shouldn't use the robot. And that would be the argument that, that Drs. Prabhu and Rosen used. I would say we have to, as a profession, have a broader view of value beyond dollars and think about what's the value of the robotic platform. We may not see that value when we look at an individual hernia case, this this person with the unilateral inguinal hernia, uncomplicated, um, they just get it it done, um, and it doesn't matter what platform you use. But on a broader picture, there may be some value to using the robot for these hernias that goes beyond the individual. If you can take uh, surgeons that can't do a minimally invasive repair now and move them from open to MIS, there's value there even if it's at increased cost. Because we know that an MIS inguinal hernia repair has a lower incidence of long-term chronic. If you can use your robotic simple inguinal hernia experience to then allow you to do advanced robotic hernia repairs, there may be value there, again, that transcends that individual patient level. So in my own practice, I can do a lap inguinal hernia, I can do a robot inguinal hernia, whatever. But if that robotic inguinal hernia experience then allows me to come and do a robotic abdominal wall reconstruction next week, that can provide some real benefit to the patient. And I don't think I could do a robotic abdominal wall reconstruction if I didn't have the experience doing the easier cases first. So I think we'll, we'll circle back in a few minutes to talk about adoption of new technology, but, but sometimes you have to adopt the new technology that then allows you to see where that platform can take you in the, in the future. Yeah, and that's a, a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about next, Dr. Wright, um, and that is exactly that, how we evaluate evolving technologies in surgery. There was a time when laparoscopic surgery itself was the evolving technology, uh, and laparoscopic inguinal hernia repair was deemed inferior to open with respect to recurrence rates, and yet as a field, we continued to perform and study them, uh, and now they're emerging not only as equivalent, but in many ways superior to the open approach, with pretty good evidence for both faster recovery and reduced chronic pain in the laparoscopic groups. How do we balance legitimate concerns of the current robot critics against the platform that has the potential to demonstrate uh, patient benefit in the future? You know, it's interesting. When we go back to the early days of laparoscopy, which, which I'm not that old, it precedes me, 
but we saw a lot of uh, people naysaying laparoscopy because of increased complication rates. So common bile duct injuries, uh, the, the famous VA uh, lap versus open trial run by Lee Neumeier showed actually worse outcomes with laparoscopy. Um, we really saw a lot of naysayers for laparoscopy, and over time, what we found is that the benefits of laparoscopy became more and more apparent, and also the outcomes of laparoscopy became more and more apparent. So uh, the early studies that showed worse outcomes with laparoscopy over time were replaced by studies that showed better outcomes with laparoscopy. Now, you could argue, and I, I actually would argue, that robotic surgery in its current form is laparoscopic surgery. It's just laparoscopic surgery with a, with a fancier instrument, um, but it's the same procedures. Um, so I think we can talk a lot about learning curve. I think hopefully at some point, either in this podcast or another, and we can also talk about the future of robotic surgery and, and where we think this current state might be heading over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So uh, Dr. Stilley, you want to comment on the learning curve question? Yeah, because I think it's such an important thing. I think the discussion about value versus cost is really the true best way to look at healthcare money. Finding value can come from more costly practices. And a good example of that, I think, is the learning curve in adoption of minimally invasive inguinal hernia repairs. In general, the thought is the learning curve for robotic in, uh basic robotic inguinal hernias is about 15 to 25 cases, somewhere in that range, before you feel comfortable to start doing those regularly and independently in practice. In terms of laparoscopic inguinal hernia repairs, the numbers are definitely higher. I would say they're in the 100 case range, and I've heard people claim 200 cases to really get the learning curve down. And the ability to get minimally invasive hernia repairs to underserved or less served populations, having a general surgeon who does not need prior laparoscopic or minimally invasive fellowship training, which the ROLAR study showed that the robotic platform does not require that pre-existing knowledge or baseline laparoscopic experience to achieve a meaningful learning curve of 20 cases on the robot. It, show, it allow, would allow tremendous value in underserved parts of the country. Right now at University of Washington, we capture patients from Idaho, from Alaska, from Hawaii, from Wyoming, who come to us for complex hernia repairs because they don't have people in their community who can help take care of them. The main indications for minimally invasive hernia, inguinal hernia repairs, as we all know, is recurrence or bilaterality. Those are very common things that we see in our practice. And patient cost to come three, four hours to see us, which does not happen routinely but doesn't happen rarely either, is immense and does not get captured in any of these cost value studies. So being able to teach a general surgeon in Idaho who could come learn from a surgeon to 20, 25 cases, build up their learning curve, would then provide tremendous value to their local community despite an initial high cost of adoption of this new technology. 
Great. Thanks, Dr. Citrullo. And to change gears a little bit and to get back to ergonomics, I was a little bit surprised looking at this study just from a trainee perspective, having done some reps on the robot and some with laparoscopy. I was expecting to see um, a benefit uh, from an ergonomic perspective from the robot platform uh, and didn't see it. But Dr. Wright, you've been doing laparoscopic surgery and complex hernia repairs laparoscopically for over 15 years and are now starting to use the robot in your practice. Can you just give us a, a little bit better understanding of what led you to make that change despite these uh, many arguments about cost and operating time? Yeah, sure. So um, first off, I'll say that there's a growing community of surgeons that have an interest in ergonomics, and uh, you can find us on Twitter. So uh, we, we're having a monthly working group that uh, we're talking about these things. Um, there's other studies besides the rival trial that have looked at ergonomics of robotic surgery. And interestingly, almost all of them show that overall there's not a net benefit in the ergonomics of the robot. Um, however, there are some specific differences about ergonomics in different muscle and musculoskeletal groups. So the robot tends to have slightly worse cervical strain and eye strain and some finger uh, strain, whereas laparoscopy has a lot more trunk, uh, back, uh, shoulder, and elbow strain. So what you see is that they really just stress different things. Um, I've heard once minimally invasive surgery is a, a method for transferring the patient's pain to the surgeon, and it's very true. <laughs> um, so I think we have to be mindful that to have a, a surgical career, you know, it really is a marathon, not a sprint. So we have to be mindful of ergonomics much more so than we have been in the past uh, to make sure our surgical workforce can continue to, to practice. Uh, so how that applies to me? Um, I've had a repetitive stress injury of my elbow from doing too much laparoscopy. One of the main drivers of me starting to use the robot is to change uh, which muscle groups I'm using uh, so that when I can sit down at the robot, I'm, I'm taking the strain off my elbow. I might be taking it on to my neck and my fingers. Um, so I'm currently doing almost all of my foregut practice laparoscopically and almost all my hernia practice robotically so that I can alternate my, my strain to different things. Uh, I think it's really important to note, however, that, that laparoscopy is essentially a mature technological field. So the instruments are terrible ergonomically. They've been terrible ergonomically for 20 or 30 years, and there's no foreseeable change in that in the future. Uh, on the other hand, the robot, uh, the robot is changing. And so I used the original S system, did about 100 cases on the S system, and quit using it because it was really painful to set up. The XI, now a couple generations later, is much easier to set up and use. And now we're starting to see some really innovative platforms coming out and hopefully will be on the market and available soon. Um, so what the robot platform is going to look like in 10 or 15 years is going to be remarkably different than, than what it looks like now. Um, we can talk a little bit about that evolution, but first I'm interested, Dr. Citrillo, where do you see the robot fitting in your practice? Well, as someone who's kind of in the beginning of my practice, I have adopted robotic inguinal hernia repair as my primary or primary path for minimally invasive repairs due to, in my opinion, the improved stability of visualization and the ability to um, 
dissect in a way where you're, when you're dealing with a recurrence, especially an open or minimally invasive recurrence, it gives you some advantages. So I see the robot only being more important, not only in my personal practice, but in general surgery in the future. And I think that the danger of these studies showing lack of or showing excess cost is going to limit more widespread adoption, which will limit future applications for the robots that may be beneficial for surgeons in terms of their own health and ergonomics and in terms of patient outcomes. Thanks, Dr. Citrullo. Since we're running out of time, I was hoping to try to tie things together in a few take-home points in that the roller and rival studies are similar and that if you just read the abstracts, you'd walk away with the impression that the robot is an expensive and time-consuming platform without any demonstrable superiority with respect to patient outcomes when compared to conventional laparoscopy. They are, however, very different in that, while the rival study showed it's likely unreasonable to expect the robot to deliver superior patient outcomes in routine operations when pitted against expert laparoscopists, especially when comparing the incidence of uncommon adverse events. Rollar provides some evidence that the robot may well accelerate less experienced minimally invasive surgeons' learning curves and allow them to achieve equivalent patient outcomes at a lower level of experience when performing complex MIS operations like rectal resections. And second, while both studies included clinically relevant patient outcome data and healthcare economics data, the rival study was novel in that it included surgeon-centered performance metrics within a randomized clinical trial, which may represent an inflection point in the sorts of questions being asked about the robot in future studies. And finally, third, both studies highlighted the challenges of evaluating emerging technologies in a way that is both useful and generalizable. While the Rollar trial was exceptionally well-designed in that it evaluated outcomes with a reasonable chance of demonstrating a statistically and uh, clinically significant benefit, they're comparing robotic surgeons who were plausibly still on their learning curve against comparatively more expert laparoscopists, cast some doubt about their conclusion that the robot platform does not decrease rate of conversion to laparotomy. The other side of that coin is evident in the rival study where, in an attempt to control for the learning curve by including only expert MIS surgeons, the conclusion that the robot has only added cost and frustration without patient benefit in routine inguinal hernias is difficult to generalize to community general surgeons and non-MIS specialists. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have, but thank you all for tuning in, and we look forward to being with you next time on Behind the Knife. Until next time, dominate the day.